What's going on and welcome in to this edition of B-Shafe Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you. It is Friday, February 2nd, 2024, and we are on the heels of some big MLB news that came Thursday evening, and I think it has some particular interest to Cardinals fans as Corbin Burns, the stud ace pitcher of the Milwaukee Brewers, has been traded out of the division, out of the National League, in fact, and will be heading to the Baltimore Orioles, joining the AL East contender and forming a pretty good duo or, or perhaps trio atop that rotation to go along with Kyle Bradish and Grayson Rodriguez, the top prospect who's maybe ready to make some waves this year in a major way for Baltimore. The Orioles, what they didn't have last year was the, the depth in their starting rotation to have those true top dog type starters, the alphas in their rotation. And now maybe that's something they'll add to a crop of really talented young position players, I should say. But what does it mean for the Cardinals? That's what we're going to explore a little bit today on B-Shape Daily. As with Milwaukee, basically, I mean, they're the defending champions of the NL Central. They're looking to defend their title this year. They may not be looking too hard to do so if they're trading their ace starting pitcher, one of their best players, before spring training begins. Really interesting how this shakes up the nature of the NL Central. And I made the tweet last night. I think it kind of has some merit to it. Doesn't it just feel like that opens the window even further for some plucky 84-win team to take down the NL Central this season? It's interesting. It puts the Cardinals in an interesting spot where if you're a Cardinals fan, you know that's one less problem to worry about. Corbin Burns is a tough customer, and although the Cardinals have been able to win some games against him here and there, it's usually like a one nothing or 2 nothing win, 2-1 to one sort of game when they get the better of Corbin Burns, it seems. That's a guy that anytime you see him on the schedule, you you kind of feel like you're going to lose the game going into it. And to take away a guy like that, that you're not going to have to see, what, two, three times potentially throughout the season, I think is a big deal for the Cardinals and other teams in the NL Central as well. But does it mean anything tangibly? The Cardinals probably were in a position already where following the Keenan Middleton signing, which we uh, posted a video on the YouTube channel about quick instant reaction to that news from Thursday night. I haven't seen as of yet, as of this recording Friday afternoon, any announcement from the team. I'm sure that'll be coming within the next couple of hours, if not already by the time you're viewing this video. But beyond that move, I'm kind of thinking the Cardinals might be content to stand pat, barring another type of move like the Middleton signing, if something should fall into their lap. But you look at the way that they have kind of stocked the right side of the bullpen. Uh, Middleton, by the way, a guy with some good reverse splits, kind of like Andre Pallante, to where perhaps he could sort of factor in as an additional lefty in the bullpen, even though he throws from the right side. The Cardinals are looking pretty solid in terms of what I, I think they're going to go into the season with in terms of their relief core. A rotation, I know everybody says, hey, they could use another starter. Realistically, I just don't see it being in the cards for this team based on the way that they've built things out so far. But does the Corbin Burns news sort of allow the Cardinals maybe even more to feel like, hey, we don't have to do anything else to potentially have a, a crack at this division this year because the team that won it in 2023, the Milwaukee Brewers, well, I mean, maybe they're figuring to take a step back this year given the fact that they're looking to unload Corbin Burns before the season even begins. I could see perhaps a scenario where a team like Milwaukee, if they're scuffling coming into July around the trade deadline period, would say, hey, maybe a bidding war for Corbin Burns amongst contending teams would be the way to handle things here in his final year in Milwaukee, right? With the way that they handled his arbitration stuff going back the last couple of years, 
I just don't envision, or didn't before this trade, I should say, the idea that Corbin Burns would sign again in Milwaukee. It seemed a foregone conclusion that he would depart in free agency. So knowing that, I guess Milwaukee just took the opportunity to try and get something for him. Now you can say, okay, what's the return on the trade? Kind of light in my opinion, but you also do have to keep in mind that the one year remaining on the contract is a factor. And the salary, by the way, is a factor. Good on the Orioles. Again, it's it's very a small thing to do. It's a, it's a low bar to clear to say the Orioles are spending some money. Uh, but I'm sure that Corbin Burns' salary for this year is going to be somewhat notable in 2024. Don't know if that's, uh, let's see, $15.687 million for Corbin Burns. I guess he has agreed to the deal with Milwaukee, and then they'll assume that contract. So that's not nothing, especially for a Baltimore team that typically doesn't spend. I mean, their payroll is going to be around $100 million maybe. So uh, good on them for, for adding the way that they should. Like I said, low bar to clear. John Angelos, their owner, is selling the team to a new group, and so maybe that will allow Baltimore to do what they ought to do and supplement that great young crop of position players with some pitching. And, and maybe Burns is an example of that. Whether they look to re-sign him long-term, who knows, but certainly for this season uh, as a mercenary to potentially help them win that AL East and, and have a guy that you know can give you some good run in the playoffs. I think it's a good move for Baltimore. But I want to focus more on the NL Central aspect of it. What's it going to take to win this division at this point in time is going to be an interesting question. Milwaukee last year won it with 92 wins. Obviously, the Cardinals were a non-factor in the NL Central with just 71 wins, bringing up the rear fifth place in the division. Pittsburgh had 76 wins. We think maybe they'll be a little better this year. But then again, if some of their young players that they're hoping come along, guys like O'Neill Cruz, who spent a lot of time injured last year, I'm not sure he's even totally ready to go for spring this season. Um, you know, they've got some players that they're hoping can come along and, and make a difference. On the pitching side, it's still been pretty lean for Pittsburgh. I don't know if they'll see Paul Skeens make his way to the big leagues yet this year, the uh, the top draft choice out of LSU. But we'll have to wait and see on Pittsburgh. You know, I, I think it's probably going to be at least another year before we can expect them to really contend for the Central. But then again, if the number really ends up being 83, 84, 85 wins, maybe that's attainable for anybody this year, including the Pirates. The Reds, I think, are particularly interesting after maybe being a bit ahead of schedule last year, 82 wins. I could see them potentially bumping up toward that 85 number, especially if they get some more uh, benefit of the doubt on the pitching side. And with that, I mean the injury luck that they had last year was not very favorable. Guys like Nick Lodolo and others ending up hurt. But you've got young, talented arms like Lodolo, like Hunter Green, uh, Graham Ashcraft. They've got a number of guys that that can throw. Brandon Williamson, maybe he gets uh, some opportunity in that rotation. Like They've got some options that I think the Reds are going to be sneaky interesting if some of those young starters should make their way forward. And then guys like Ellie De La Cruz on the offensive side, Matt McClain, Spencer Steer, like those guys kind of burst onto the scene a little bit last year. What's the follow-up going to look like for that cast and crew? But again, 85 feels within range for the Reds. Um, they're kind of sneaky. The Cubs, we don't really know what they're going to be. 83 wins last year. You know, they were kind of lifted by guys like Cody Bellinger, who is not currently re-signed. Um, I don't know what's going to end up becoming of him. I've continued to beat the drum to say, Left-handed hitting, power outfielder, can play good center field defensively, can hit right-handed pitching. I That's the St. Louis Cardinals to me. But Cody Bellinger, he's not a cardinals kind of guy. I keep using that phrase, and I think there's merit to it. Just doesn't feel like Bellinger is ever going to be a St. Louis Cardinal. 
But the Cubs did win 83 games last year. Are they going to be able to do that again? Um, they, they've been a little bit active recently. They signed Shota Imanaga, who's a guy that at the beginning of the offseason thought could maybe be interesting for the Cardinals. St. Louis obviously going a, a different route and, and deciding upon some somewhat proven veterans of MLB baseball, whether those guys are are proven to have something left in the tank for this year is obviously the subject of some debate among Cardinals fans. But Lance Lynn, Kyle Gibson, that's the way the Cardinals went. Cubs get Imanaga and some others. They've kind of dipped their toe into the free agency waters of late. But then there's Milwaukee. And it's just a very curious move for this team to make after they did, to their credit, spend a little bit in free agency, signing Reese Hoskins to a free agent contract. And I, I can't remember off the top of my head what the contract numbers were for, for Reese Hoskins. Um Two-year, $34 million. I mean, that's a nice get for the Milwaukee Brewers. And then you follow that up by saying, hey, we're going to shed the $15 million on the contract for Corbin Burns, our best player. I know that there was some discord there, and you didn't expect him to resign. But that's, I mean, that is an interesting case of sort of buying while you're selling. So I don't think this is the Milwaukee Brewers waving the the white flag. Maybe it is just simply an example of them looking at where they are and saying, hey, this guy's not coming back. We need to get something for him rather than push all our chips into the center of the table on making sure we win this year. Because even for the Brewers, what would a a division title repeat be if they don't think they can contend with the likes of the Dodgers and the Braves in the National League playoff structure? Maybe it just makes more sense to go ahead and get something for him. And that's the choice they made. Now, D.L. Hall is a pitching prospect that they come over, uh, that they bring over rather from the Baltimore Orioles. Will he be a starter or a reliever in the long run? I mean, the, the Brewers obviously hoping for him to be a starting pitcher, given that they uh, that he was kind of the prime piece coming back in the deal. Uh, Joey Ortiz is an infielder who had been on the tail end of the top 100 prospects, depending on where you looked at the beginning of 2023. Um, didn't have a very good showing in his cup of coffee in big league ball last year for Baltimore, but uh, with all the infielders that they have and more on the way, made sense for Baltimore to unload him and to get an, a bona fide ace starting pitcher, which is what Corbin Burns certainly is. But I think the question of how much will this impact the Brewers' ability to contend this season is an interesting one. Uh, Quote here from the Brewers' general manager, Matt Arnold, after the trade. Quote, anytime you trade a guy like Corbin, it's always a difficult decision. I think the overarching theme here is that we're excited about the players we're getting back, which, of course, you're going to say. And he says the reality of our situation is that we had one year left with Corbin. Like, they knew that bridge was burnt. They knew that there was no rectifying that situation. And so I think from that perspective... It's a bold move, certainly, to trade the guy now when you kind of, to me, have capped your upside a little bit. D.L. Hall could be a good starting pitcher, and maybe that works out. He's a a nice prospect. Maybe he pans out, and maybe Joey Ortiz shows more than he was able to last year, and you get some cheaper talent that's, that's controllable, right? But the caliber of player that Corbin Burns is, I wonder if there would have been a, a half a mind to keep him until July, assuming he has a good start to the season, trade him in a bidding war type of scenario at the deadline. Now, what's the risk there? He gets hurt and you walk away with nothing while still having to pay him his full nearly $16 million salary in a season where you're you're maybe a crapshoot to be able to make the playoffs anyway. You know, I think that's interesting. I, it's hard to blame them from that perspective because, again, I think it's bold because everybody's going to have the reaction that they have, which is you just won the division and you're basically taking a step back, even though, you add a guy like Reese Hoskins, that seems to be like a, a buy move to say, hey, let's continue to contend. And then you turn around going in the other direction and you trade your best pitcher, who is arguably your best player. 
So what does that say to the fan base? That's tough. I mean, that takes some cojones if you're the general manager because you know what the public reaction to that is going to be. But if your belief is that, hey, we're not going to get anything for him and we do like this this D.L. Hall to be able to join, uh, ideally, the rotation, a left-handed pitcher, uh, 25 years old, I'll give you his numbers, and, and I'll be curious to see kind of the way they end up utilizing Hall this season because when he was called up for Baltimore and got some opportunity last year, it was strictly as a relief pitcher. 18 appearances, 19 innings, had a 3-2-6 ERA, pretty good numbers, um, but had been utilized as a starter at times in the minors. Throughout his minor league career, was was more that guy. It looks like, though, based on if you just take a quick look at the numbers, had more success when he's when he's in the bullpen at the big league level this year, obviously, and, you know, didn't, didn't necessarily strike you as an innings eater in the minors. So, I, I don't know. He might end up being a guy who's kind of pigeonholed into a relief role, which is okay. You need good relief pitching. But you traded away a guy who you know is a bulldog. You know is going to go six, seven, eight innings every time he takes the ball. And you're going to have to replace that production in your rotation somehow. Now, what does that do to the Brewers? I think last year that the Milwaukee Brewers won 92 games in part because the Cardinals were were so down. Um, I'd have to go back and look at specifically the record between the Cardinals and Brewers. But it seemed like the Brewers took advantage of the Cardinals having the year that they had. And that might sound like a homer take in favor of St. Louis, because when you're the last place team, you're not really involved in the conversation about who's going to win the division, right? But in the minds of Cardinals fans, and certainly in the minds of, of, of those involved with that team coming into the season, Cardinals expected to be in that mix, right? You were playoff team the year before that, last couple of seasons, in fact, had won the division a couple of years back. Like the expectation was to come in and contend for that division and then be able to make a push in October. It absolutely, absolutely did not go that way for the St. Louis Cardinals in 2023, but it kind of feels like the Milwaukee Brewers, and again, if it's a homer take, it's a homer take, we're like the placeholder for when the Cardinals get their stuff together. And to win 92 games is no small feat. Like, they had a really good year, but I look at their roster up and down. I didn't believe in Milwaukee last year, and maybe they'll be able to surprise me again this season, but I just didn't really see it when it comes to the Brewers in 2023 until it was inevitable, right? It ultimately became unavoidable. But you look at that team that, that lost 2-0 straight sets to the Arizona Diamondbacks in the playoffs, and I know the Diamondbacks were kind of a force of nature. They felt like uh, the, the the Phillies of 2022, where if Phillies get on a little bit of a roll, you, you knock out the Cardinals in the first round and, and are able to extend that to a, a run into the World Series. That's all well and good. I just didn't think that the Brewers were going to be a very difficult out for a team like the, the Diamondbacks who had to s- sneak in on the wild card. Like, they reminded me of the Phillies a lot in that way to the D-backs, but I also think they had a team that sort of, you know, in the case of the Cardinals with the Phillies in 22, the Cardinals just shot themselves in the foot in that series. But the Brewers in this two-game set against the Diamondbacks, I just didn't think they were the more talented team. And you kind of look at what they had lineup-wise and what they'll have coming back this year. Like, Christian Yelich had some good offensive numbers last year, to his credit, was able to, to still be an effective guy. Um, what are they going to get out of Bryce Terang, you know, in, in, the, in their infield? Rowdy Telez didn't give him much last year. William Contreras was a very nice get. I think they took advantage of um, the fact that the Braves were able to take advantage of the, the Oakland Athletics in that deal where the, everybody was swapping catchers. Uh, William Contreras had a really good season, better than Wilson did even, uh, the, the younger brother of Wilson Contreras. And so, I mean, they've got an okay lineup. You know, Jesse Winker was bad. David Tyrone Taylor was serviceable. Willie Adamas was serviceable, and that's not really what you need from him. You need some star power. 
Uh, the prior year, he kind of looked like a stud. Ends up hitting 217 with 165 Ks. I just, I mean, they've got guys up and coming. Sal Fralick, if, if he can maybe take a step forward this year. But I, I just think top to bottom, man, I, I just don't know that this lineup is supposed to be all that strong compared to, like, you can't argue with 92 wins, right? But it, it just seems to me that, like, if I take spots one through nine, looking at the Cardinals lineup for this coming season, and I guess I, I, I obviously know more about the Cardinals than I do the the Brewers, but, like, the projected Brewers lineup for 2024, would I be able to find something out there? Roto Champ, can we trust that? Or maybe we should go to, to a Brewers blog because they'll have a better idea. So let's go ahead and do that. We're looking at Brewer Fanatic here. Article by Matthew Trueblood. Let's see if we can come up with what a look at what he envisions as someone who follows the Brewers, evidently. This is what he had written as of December, and, and there's going to be an obvious addition with Reese Hoskins going into this thing. Christian Yelich, William Contreras, Sal Fralick as the three-hole hitter, which, again, Fralick is a, a prospect that's regarded, and if he takes a step forward this season, it's going to be a, a good year for him. He's 23 years old. I know he burst onto the scene last year. was the number 34 prospect, according to Baseball America. Heading into 2023, Sal Fralick is a good player. Um, let me go ahead and take a look at the, what he finished up, because I feel like he kind of fell off the pace last year. Yeah, ended with a 692 OPS, hit 240-something, 340 on base, didn't slug for much. He's kind of like their Lars Newtbar, but is he going to be able to establish the same floor of a Lars Newtbar? I think is a fair way to put it. He's still pretty young at 23 years old. But uh, this this blogger uh, for Brewer Fanatic happens to have Fredlick as the number three hitter playing right field. Adamas for Jackson Chorio, who's obviously a, a top prospect in his own right. And like I said, they have some guys, guys coming, and he's one that is going to arrive on the scene very early. I expect he'll be on the opening day roster uh, because the Brewers signed Chorio, and if I'm saying that wrong, I'll learn it soon, to a, a, a contract extension before he ever stepped step foot in the big leagues. So he's a guy that's going to be a middle-order bat. And then you add Reese Hoskins to that. This had Jake Bowers, but Hoskins has since been signed to play first base. That's a pretty good one through six. I could give some credit to that. And then you kind of see down at the bottom, how do you kind of piece it together? Tyrone Taylor, seventh. Bryce Terang did not have uh, good numbers, but he's a good ball player, batting eighth. Andrew Monasterio, third base, batting ninth. So that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of what the Brewers might be looking at. Adding Reese Hoskins, adding Jackson Chorio, certainly going to help that lineup be a little more robust. I think they're pretty good in, in the one through six. It's going to depend, though, a little bit on Sal Fralick. Uh, the, the the Brewer blogger here has him penciled in as the number three. You know, the numbers last year didn't dictate him as a number three hitter, hitting the 690 OPS. However, he showed flashes. So Brewers line up pretty good. But if I'm going to stack that up against the Cardinals one through six, and it's fun to do the mock lineup thing in the offseason, so we'll do it. Uh, I would start with Brendan Donovan, as I've stated before. I'm going to allow for the the left-right, left-right configuration because I think that's what Ollie Marmel is generally going to lean toward. I've said I'd bat Lars Dupar second, but I I obviously see that that creates some issues um, in terms of the balance to the lineup. If you go Donovan, Dupar, and then you go Goldie Arenado, you know, you go left, left, right, right. That's makes you a little bit exposed in terms of what opposing managers can do to you from a relief pitcher standpoint. But since I know that that's probably not going to be the way the Cardinals go, I won't dial it up that way. I'll say Donovan, Goldie, number two. And then it's a question of, like, does Lars Newbar have enough power to bat number three? In a modern lineup, you don't have to be the most powerful hitter to bat third. 
Um, I could see Lars Newbar batting third. I could also see them putting Nolan Gorman in that spot if he can establish enough consistency. But because I think Newbar probably a better all-around hitter at this point than Gorman, despite having less power, let's put Newt at number three. Let's put Nolan Arenado at four, Nolan Gorman at five. And so we've gone left, right, left, right successfully. Then six can be whether it's Wilson Contreras, Jordan Walker. I think those guys are going to be six, seven in some form or fashion. I'm going to assume that Ollie goes with Wilson first, just because of the notion of veteran, been around the block. That tends to matter, at least in the opening day configuration. Although I kind of like the idea of maybe going Jordan Walker second, but it, but it gets to a point where they're not going to put Goldie and Arenado any lower than 3-4, and maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's an adjustment that needs to be made. You could bat Nolan fifth, um, but he's always been a cleanup guy. I think he's going to probably be the cleanup guy to enter the season, and so you, you adjust your lineup around that. Whether that's right or wrong, we can get into that as we move along closer to the regular season. But, like, I'm looking at that comparison to what the Brewers have. Donovan, really good on-base threat. We know what Goldschmidt is. Uh, we know what Lars Newpark can be. I, I still think a step forward for him would be nice. But he's still been, like, a 15 to 20% above-average hitter if you look at OPS Plus for his young career. Uh, Arenado, expect him to be better than he was last year. We know the kind of player that he is. Gorman, the raw power is substantial. Contreras had a really good offensive season last year if you look at the raw totals. I think Jordan Walker is one of the guys that can take one of the biggest leaps forward um, from what we saw from him last year to what I think we can see from him this year, just another year more established. And then you kind of get into the bottom of the lineup as well and start to think about, okay, uh, what are the other positions here? Center field, Tommy Edmond, Mason Wynn going to be at shortstop. And then you kind of have the question, I guess, of, of designated hitter, although we did put Donovan and Gorman both in the lineup. And so that figures um, to kind of be what it is. Between having your second base and your DH kind of be interchangeable. Gorman, I think, DH a good amount. Uh, if it's Jordan Walker DHing, maybe that puts Donovan into left field um, instead of second base, and you can kind of move it around that way. But I gave a pretty good one through seven, and then we know Edmund and Mason Wynn probably will be near the bottom of the order in whatever configuration you want. They're both kind of a similar guy in terms of maybe not going to be above average offensively necessarily. They certainly could be, but they have the ability to get on base a little bit and obviously steal a base for you. So having those guys in a row, if they can just kind of keep the line moving down there, you could see some really interesting things that then turn it back over to a Donovan. And maybe a Newt Bar is going to be your leadoff man for that reason instead of Donnie because they say, look, if those guys at the bottom get on outside of the first inning, Lars Newpark could be kind of a power threat to hit behind the 8-9 hitters, and you could go that way. I think the Cardinals have a more complete lineup is my point. Like, Comparing Sal Freilich to Newt Bar, I'm taking Newt Bar at least as of right now until Freilich proves a little bit more. Um, you get to the bottom of the Brewer lineup with Terang and Monasterio. I'm certainly going to be taking Edmund and uh, Mason Wynn, who, although he didn't show last year, I think has upside. And and it's it wouldn't be fair to look at the Brewers guys and say, oh, their young guys don't have upside. Cardinals guys do. Like, you want to check yourself on those takes. But I, I think Mason Wynn certainly can turn into an, uh, to an average or even above average MLB hitter. Um, Terang feels like a guy based on the minor league numbers that can get to be a league average hitter, but is he ever going to be too far above league average remains to be seen. Uh, and then Sal Freilich, what does he end up doing there? Chorio as a top prospect, you can sort of compare to what the Cardinals are hoping to get from Jordan Walker. Like, I think there's a lot of comparisons that are on paper. We do have to acknowledge that one team won 90 something games last year. One team lost 90 something games last year, but I think the Cardinals 
hitter-wise, do match up toe-to-toe with what the Brewers are going to be putting out there from a position player standpoint. And then you look at the rotations. I mean, that's something that's obviously going to make a big difference. Here's the Brewer Fanatic blog kind of that took a look in December. And again, it's Matthew Trueblood. Um, I'm not too familiar with him, but uh, he wrote this blog and, and kind of lined things up. And I think there's some value to reading, um, what, you know, what the fan sites have to say about the way they look at their teams. Corbin Burns, Freddie Peralta, Wade Miley, Adrian Hauser, Colin Ray was the way that they lined it out one through five. Burns is gone now, as we know. So does Aaron Ashby get healthy and put himself back into the rotation? Um, what about Robert Gasser, who is a pitching prospect that could potentially make his way into the Brewer rotation? Um, he came over in the trade that was with the San Diego Padres. I'm trying to remember exactly who it was a big name that changed hands there. Um, I, I believe that was maybe a three-team deal that involved Juan Soto. I got to go back and look. No, I need to correct myself. It was, of course, the Josh Hader trade, kind of similar to maybe what the Brewers just did with Burns. They traded away Josh Hader, and they kind of figured they weren't going to be able to resign him, so they got what they could for him. Um, Robert Gasser, Asteri Ruiz, who then went in that three-team trade that involved William Contreras to Oakland. Um, Taylor Rogers and Denelson Lamette, who the Brewers got rid of immediately when they got him. Um, but Gasser was a prospect that uh, is a good pitcher that could end up being, he's kind of another one of those guys that you say, well, is he a starter? Is he a reliever? Kind of in for the Cardinals, the example is like where you're at with Libertor and where you're at with Zach Thompson. We'll see what ends up happening there. But Robert Gasser, maybe he steps in, maybe Ashby steps in. The one through five, though, like if your best arm is Peralta, that's pretty good. I'd say comparable to Sonny Gray. I think toe-to-toe, that's pretty even. And then, you know, Wade Miley, Adrian Hauser, Colin Ray, you take in Michaelis, Lynn, and Matts over those guys. Eh, a lot of Cardinals fans that saw last season are probably skeptical of saying, hey, this is an above-average rotation, even though it's largely a new group. But I think it's comparable. Like, I don't think the Brewer rotation is necessarily a strength of that team. And they don't know who their number five is necessarily going to be. There are some options, but is it somebody that's a bonafide? Not really. And Kyle Gibson, I think, is a pretty reliable number five for where the Cardinals are coming from. So, like, comparable, I would say. The rosters are really eerily similar. You can even look to the bullpen and say, well, Devin Williams is a stud. Yeah, I mean, Ryan Helsley, when healthy, is a stud as well. So I would say, bullpen-wise, it kind of remains to be seen who has the edge there. I think with some of the moves the Cardinals have made, uh, Milwaukee has historically had really solid bullpens, and and they go two, three, four deep in terms of guys they'll trust in leverage situations. But that was, of course, a little bit more true when they had Josh Hader. Now they don't have him. The Cardinals, I think, have put themselves into a position where they can be a little more confident in their two, three, four, five deep in terms of their options for late innings. So I know that the two teams had very different courses in 2023. 2024, I feel like the Cardinals do match up. I don't know if it's favorably, but um, they're similar. And, and I think they can compete with Milwaukee. Do the Reds take a big step forward? That might be the train that nobody can stop. If they get the young starting pitching to take a step forward, and it happens all at once. Hunter Green becomes a, a perennial all-star type of guy. Uh, Lodolo can be healthy and, and, and be a real force because he's a strikeout type of arm. They have more power arms in their rotation. The upside of Cincinnati's rotation is considerably higher than what the Cardinals have, I think. The downside, though, with a lot of unproven guys, I think is also lower than what the Cardinals have. So where that sort of lands. And then the Cubs, again, found a way to 80-some-odd wins last year. Are they in? Are they out? What, what are they doing to uh, sort of replace some of the production of, of guys like Bellinger? Um, they have added to that rotation. I think they're interesting. I think a lot of these teams in the Central are, are in that melting pot. 
and I'm maybe a little bit still dismissive of the Pirates, um, but they can certainly prove me wrong. The Cardinals, we just sort of seem to think they're going to be back in that 80-some-odd win mix, whether it's 80, 82, 84, 85. I think the Cardinals project to be in that range or to certainly have the ability to get back into that range. Um, it doesn't happen by magic. we got to acknowledge what happened last year. But when you factor in that they had basically waved the white flag at the deadline, they got a lot worse toward the end. And that was maybe a scenario where they'd be able to win some games if they had kept it together. But they were right not to keep it together. It was by then very clearly not a winning endeavor in 2023. And so they made the moves to sort of restock the farm system, especially on the pitching side. Where are the Cardinals going to be? I'm not entirely sure. They're making the incremental moves right now. They, they did the things that they thought they needed to do. And we're going to see how the test of that pitching rotation and the bullpen that they have built plays out. But it doesn't hurt that Corbin Burns is no longer in the division. Now, will the Cardinals use that as an excuse to sort of rest on their laurels and say, hey, we're not going to do anything else? I don't know if it's that specific of a connection, but I, I, I would say they were already going to make the moves they were going to make. I don't know if this changes anything for them, but you can obviously feel better about your chances when Corbin Burns is not in the division. And maybe that's something the Cardinals counted on from the beginning of the offseason, and they, you know, we finally saw it come to fruition with that trade. I don't know really what their internal expectations would have been for how Milwaukee would handle Burns this year, but it stands to reason that if they figured they couldn't re-sign him, they'd either want to get something for him now or at the deadline. And if you're in contention, Ian, do you want to do something at the deadline and like send him away because you think it's worth it because you could get a haul for him, that doesn't look good, right? That'd be a bad look to the fan base to do it at that point in time. You can remember back to 2022. To me, that's honestly what happened in Milwaukee at the deadline and, and thereafter with that clubhouse. They trade Josh Hader, a team that's like right in the mix. I think they might have even been in first place at the time. And that had an impact. I mean, Devin Williams had talked about that and said, yeah, like that wasn't a move they were expecting. And I think it was kind of human nature to say, well, if, if they're not going to add, if the front office doesn't believe that we've got a shot at this thing, maybe we don't. And they sort of allowed that to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the Cardinals kind of swooped in and, you know, were able to do what they were able to do. Cardinals end up winning 90-something games in that season. They win the division. The Brewers, I think, were on the outside of the playoffs entirely. Uh, looking back at the standings, yeah, they, I think they missed out because the wild cards that season were the Padres and the Phillies and the Mets, if I'm not mistaken. And the Brewers missed out. So, like, that was something tangible that happened to that clubhouse because of what happened at the deadline. So if you're Milwaukee and your front office is dead set on, hey, we're getting something for Burns, we're not going to let him walk for just a comp pick um, in, the, in the following draft, we're going to make this move. You kind of have to do it now before you end up with egg on your face because you're six games above 500 tied for first place at July 15th and wanting to make the move, but you, you risk kind of the clubhouse completely deteriorating because of it. Um, to say like, yeah, we're in the mix and we're going to trade our best player. You you can't sell that to a fan base. Hard to sell this to a fan base too, but at least it's in the off season where by the time spring training happens and, and you're through it, he was never really part of the 2024 team. And so that's an easier way to kind of package it if you're trying to sell it to a fan base. Even though it's a hard move, if you as the front office think it needs to happen, I, I think I can understand why it happened now instead of the deadline. Um, although it would have been tantalizing to try and because I think you get more for him then, right? At the deadline, I think you get more for him, or there's a chance that you do. It's not a guarantee, given the fact that he could get hurt. But I think that is kind of an interesting dichotomy. But Cardinals fans, I'm curious for you, what do you think about the Burns trade? Are you excited? I, I imagine the answer is yes. But also, is there sort of this overwhelming feeling in the back of your mind that 
makes you go, oh, this is going to make it so the Cardinals feel they don't have to add, you know, because you think the Cardinals need a starter, but now that they don't have Corbin Burns in Milwaukee, the rotations kind of do match up relatively evenly, uh, at least on paper. Is that something where, you know, you thought the Cardinals would have made a move and now they feel they don't have to? Again, I don't think Milwaukee's goings-ons have the impact of the Cardinals saying, hey, we now don't need to do something. I don't think they look at it that, you know, specifically, but maybe that's how you feel as a Cardinal fan. Let me know in the YouTube comment section below. And if you enjoy Cardinals content on the daily, that's the plan for 2024, especially as we get closer to baseball season uh, with me heading down to spring training here in a couple of weeks. So hit the subscribe button to this YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at bshafer12. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, go ahead and type that into your URL and make sure to subscribe on YouTube too uh, to help me out in that way. But I appreciate you guys as always for listening. That is going to do it for this edition of the show. Thank you guys so much, and we will talk to you next time on Be Shafe Daily. Peace.